Good evening. I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. You are here Wednesday evening for our Bible study on the book of Hebrews. At least that's the book we're going through currently. We went through 1 Corinthians um, when we began this Wednesday evening Bible study, and now we're in the book of Hebrews. And again, uh, we'll do this as long as the Spirit allows, or rather, until Ash Wednesday, which I think. Oh, let's see. That'd be just in two weeks, or two weeks from tonight. So, um, next week will be our our last uh, on the Book of Hebrews for a time, and then we'll come back to it after Easter. All right. Uh, just a prompt for those of you who are here. Um, I'd encourage you to interact with me. I I, I much prefer teaching a class with participants um, rather than just lecturing to the wall. Um, the congregation of prayer that we do every morning, I, I try to simulate asking questions. It's more like Jeopardy and you're playing along at home. Um, but here, feel free to post comments or questions below in the chat, whether you're on Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, or whatever platform you're on. <clears throat> post your questions, um, and if they're relevant, and <laughs> if I, um, I'm prepared to answer them, I will do the best we can. All right. Uh, so let me get it up on the screen here. There we go. And so we're in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to look at chapter 7 this evening. Let me see if I can make this bigger for you. Oh, that's much smaller. Uh, that's pretty, that's as big as it'll go. So let's, let's use that. All right. So uh, a reminder that ever since chapter 1 and 2, the preacher-teacher of the writer of the Hebrews has been has really been doing an exposition on one particular psalm, Psalm 110, verse 4. All right, so I brought that up on the screen so you can see that. Um, let's use this for our opening prayer. Lord, The Lord has sworn, I will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Amen. You, meaning the, uh, the Son, Jesus, are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So, last week we talked about this, uh, and what, what happens in chapter 7 is we go back to a theme that was uh, in chapter the middle of chapter 5, that we left for a time. Um, the preacher-teacher, as preacher-teachers do, they go off on their tangent. Um, not irrelevant, though. It was a relevant tangent to remind the, the, that he's going to be talking about something quite difficult and doing an ex expose, an exposition, on that, that text, Psalm 110, verse 4, and also Psalm 2. Um, and it was gonna be, it's going to be hard to receive, because he's going to go dig deep, so to speak. And in order to do that, he here returns to the theme of Melchizedek, the king of Salem, we talked about this, a priest of the Most High God, um, and goes to the story. And so last last week, you can go back and watch this if you didn't weren't with us. Um, he digs deep into that story. We talked about it quite a bit about how um, actually this was two weeks ago. How Abraham um, and the relationship of Abraham and Melchizedek, and with the the whole battle of the five kings and all of that. All right. And then we talked about it last week. Is that as far as we got? Oh yes, we talked about this last part right here. All right, 
Um, now, this, this is an exposition of really what I would say are uh, three primary themes that he wants to pull out of that text from Psalm 110. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right. Um, there's going to be three things. You are a priest, all right, and then um, forever, ever living, and then the order of Melchizedek. All right, so we're going to deal with those three ideas. So today we're going to look at ever living high priest. Um, and last week we talked about um, the kind of priesthood that he had and what he offered. And then well, maybe we'll get to it today, but we'll talk about the order of Melchizedek. What is meant by that? So again, this is the preacher taking what is seemingly kind of a throwaway phrase and really expanding and blowing up everything that's behind the psalm, Psalm 110, verse 4. Okay, so that's what's going on. So we did, he did all the historical introduction last week and dealt with primarily um, the Jesus being, or this, being this king and priest. Oh, that's the first idea. Today, we're going to talk about him being the ever-living priest. All right, so let me get back to our text. There we go. Yes, so this all had to do with him being both king and priest, right? Then... Now we're going to look at verse 11 through 19. All right, so you can follow along on your screen. And again, if you've got any questions, comments, I wouldn't say concerns, <laughs> questions or comments, you want to interact with this text or with me, feel free to uh, post it in the chat down below, and I'll do my best to respond in a timely fashion. Although I think you're about 30 seconds behind me but that's okay too. All right, I'm looking, not seeing anything in the chat. I closed all my other windows. All right, welcome Gus and Eileen. So here's our text. Uh, and again, uh, I'm going to use a different translation than what you're seeing on your screen. So do your best to follow along or you can follow along at home. Verse 11. So then, if there had been perfection through the, through the Levitical priestly service, for about this, the people have been instructed in the law. What further need would there have been for a different priest to arise in the order of Melchizedek and not be designated in the order of Aaron? Verse 12, for with the change of the priestly service, a change of law necessarily occurs. Verse 13, since he of whom these things are spoken is part of a different tribe from which no one has ever attended to the altar. Verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord has sprung up from Judah, a tribe about which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Verse 15. And it is even more evident that if a different priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, verse 16, it is he who has not become a priest according to the law of a fleshy commandment, but according to the power of indestructible life. Verse 17. Uh, yeah. Verse 17. Since it is attested, you are a priest for eternity in the order of Melchizedek. There it is again. For on the one hand, the annulment of a preceding commandment occurs on account of its weakness and unhelpfulness. Verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. And, on the other hand, 
there is the introduction of a better hope through which we draw near to God. All right? So that's uh, through 19 there. All right, so let's break this down a little bit. Um, You'll notice right away there's a word here um, (laughs) that we should stumble on. I would suggest we we should bump into this uh, because it's not often understood, I would say, correctly. And that's the word right there, the third word. So then, if perfection. All right, now this is teleosis is the, uh, the form here. It is the completion of something, the goal, the attainment of something. Right? And you see that with had been attainable. So perfection, its end. This, this is the same word that Jesus uses at the cross. Um, well, he uses the perfect um, passive tense of it, to telestai, right? But it, it's from the word teleos or telos, which is the end or the completion or the fulfillment. All right? Um, so now we're talking about the purpose of the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. And right? so now we're going to dig into the priesthood given by Moses, right? And um, it's imperfection, it's inadequacy. Um, but before we do that, though, I think we have to talk a little bit about uh, God's word, and especially his word of law. Because remember, the purpose of the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, is to administer God's legal uh, code, right? His law, to preach his law. And, and we as Christians also are given to preach the law according to the Ten Commandments, for example. Right? The question is not, well, I want to be careful here. The law is good. The law is wise. We even sing that in our hymns. The law is God's word. The problem with the law is not with the law itself, which is the expressed will of God for humanity. The problem with the law is that we're sinners. We're in open and complete, utter rejection, rebellion to that law. So the law, its insufficiency for us is because of our own nature as being sinners. It doesn't work, quote-unquote. It doesn't accomplish what, what it sets out to do because we stand in its way as sinners. Right? So if anyone could do this, they would live, right? That's uh, when Jesus meets the rich young ruler, right? And Jesus says, um, you know, what, or he asks, uh, what is the greatest commandment? That's the question, right? What is the greatest commandment? And the rich young ruler, uh, Jesus responds, uh, you shall love the Lord your God. Um, no, wait a minute. He responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Right? But then, uh, where does it go? What's the question Jesus asks? Well, I think he tells him a parable, right? And um, the man has a great number of possessions. That's right, he tells a parable. He has a great number of possessions, and he goes away sorrowful. Why? Because he, while he has kept the law, quote-unquote, the law has not had its way with him to actually perfect him in righteousness. Does that all follow? You're making sense of this? All right? So while he, he outwardly expressly kept the law, maybe the Sabbath, and not murdering, not adultering, not um, coveting. Uh, that one's a little hard to diagnose externally, <laughs> since it's a, definitely of the heart. Um, praying, 
you know, however many appointed times per day, all of the honoring his parents and other authorities, etc. Outwardly, he kept the law, right? But then when Jesus tells that story, he misses the, we learn that he, he sees the law as outward obedience to earn God's favor, right? But instead, what the law's purpose is, is, well, yes, to instruct you in the way that you should go, but then that means it always accuses us of where we have gone astray, right? It's always calling us now as a Christian to repentance or the forgiveness of sins. This is really important, right? Now, the Levitical priesthood did administer God's law and it administered forgiveness of sins attached to the ritual sacrifices made in the tabernacle and temple, right? But the problem, just as the psalmist sings, um, you know, if I delighted, you know, uh, what do you say? I do not delight in this, in the, in, um, in your sacrifices, or what's the other expression? I can't remember which psalm. Um, you know, not the blood of bulls or goats um, or of calves could could atone for for all your sins. Something like that, right? There's an insufficiency in the prescription of the Mosaic law, so much so that then Paul in say Romans um, chapter, well, chapter Galatians chapter four talks about the law being a tutor or a guide, or a pedagogue, a disciplinarian, if you like, right? The old-style teacher with the, with the ruler that keeps whacking your wrists. I actually had a third-grade teacher who did that to her own son who was in my class <laughs> and did it publicly up in front of the classroom. He was not well-behaved. Um, that's what the law does. It disciplines us. It, it uh, penalizes us for our disobedience. It shows us the way we should go, but it doesn't actually have the capacity to make us righteous, um, because our sin is not something that we can overcome, right? Not by ourselves, not of ourselves. So, for example, also you would see some similar language in Romans 8. So I'm going to go there so you can see it. All right. This is how Paul says it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See the key here? In Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, right? So now we see two laws. Paul talks about this. For God has done what the law, that is, the law of Moses, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, that is through obedience, which we can't, of course, do because we're flesh and blood, sinful flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, that is trying to make amends and, and obey God through outward actions, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Right? It actually ends up being a downward spiral. The more we talk about not committing adultery or fleeing sexual temptation, the more that we commit it. Right? But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit, right? So we, we instead think of not um, the things of this world, but rather we speak of the gift of marriage, for example, right? Uh, and of companionship. And, and it doesn't mean that we don't acknowledge our sin, but we set our minds on the good thing that God has given, right? And then uh, obviously live in, in repentance. So you see here, this is what's going on in the background. Uh, let me scroll back down. 
This is what's going on in the background here with this text, specifically with the Mosaic priesthood. All right. I don't see any questions there. Feel free to jump in at any point. All right. This is a common question. It's like, well, does the the law of Leviticus, does it still apply to us? And the answer is no, right? Jesus, that's one of the things that's going on in this book, is Jesus has assumed everything that that law is a type and shadow of into himself, right? And that's what's going on in this text too. All right. Um, so the first thing, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, and of course, it's a rhetorical question, so the answer is, of course, no, it can't be attained. Uh, but what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? All right? So, I mean, it's a great rhetorical question. Why would you need Jesus if you could have righteousness, perfection, completion, if you could actually eliminate sin by the keeping of the Levitical priesthood? Right? And that's why I brought up Paul's expression from Galatians that the law serves as a tutor or as a guide. Um, actually, he also calls it a guardian under which we're kept um, until Christ comes. All right, so it was for the sake of repentance uh, and looking forward to the forgiveness of sins in Christ. All right, so he keeps going. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there necessarily there is necessarily a change in the law as well. All right, so. Um, this is this is really a dense legal argument. There's all sorts of expressions in here about law and perfection, and priests and priestly service, and commandments, etc. Right? Um, but this is a very simple expression. All right. If if we're Christ, which is where he's driving here, is after a different order that is not of the house of Levi, which we'll get to in a minute, um, not as an offspring of Aaron, as say Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Simeon, I think, well, we don't know about Simeon for sure, but he was in the temple. You know, those who would serve in the tabernacle and then later in the temple, um, they are bound by a law that was spoken by Moses, right? Um, their job is prescribed prophetically, written on tablets, later then uh, orally transmitted and then written um, in the Torah. They don't have any option um, to move a field from the prescriptions that the law that god has given uh, think of the example of aaron's sons right who offer the profane fire that is fire that god had not authorized that's all it means and they were struck down they both died right? um, but if jesus comes if this priest arises after a different order that is of melchizedek right a different he has a different origin he has a he's of a different tribe of course we'll talk about um, that also means that he's not bound by the same law, the law of Moses. Of course, we know that Christ fulfills the law of Moses, but then he sets a new covenant, right? Yeah. Verse 13, for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. I mean, David danced in front of the altar, but he wasn't authorized. They did eat the showbread in the time. He wasn't authorized for that. So there was some foreshadowing that David, uh, you know, was that someone of the loins of David would have uh, special permissions there in the temple and tabernacle. Uh, yes, but of course, uh, no, there was no priestly order of any other tribe than Levi. 
Pretty straightforward, right? For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priests. Which means, huh, Jesus fulfills the law of Moses, but then he actually sets up what Paul calls the law of Christ. right? And law there doesn't mean like a set of uh, restrictions and duties and all of that kind of language like we talk about, but rather um, talking about faith and the reception of faith um, through the, the, the word and sacraments, through the gospel preaching. Yeah. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, right? So now, this was the point that we've talked about repeatedly over the last few weeks, is that Melchizedek then serves, serves as a type of the antitype who is Christ, right? He's, he's the shadow, Christ is the fulfillment. You know, it's a reasonable question as you're reading through the Genesis account and you hit chapter 18 of Genesis and you're like, who is this guy? Where did he come from? And what's this whole story? What's this doing here with Melchizedek receiving offerings, um, but then blessing Abraham under what authority? And then he never shows up again. We don't know where he came from. We don't know who his parents are. We don't know where he goes to. Well, that's the point, according to the preacher teacher here in Hebrews, is that that strange occurrence is actually then the foreshadowing of the whole priesthood of Christ and who he is. That he comes from God and he returns to God, right? Um, That he serves under, he has his own kingdom, he serves under a different set of laws and rules, and yes, he'll gladly receive your offering, but he comes to bless. Okay, so you get the idea, you're getting the idea now. That's what he's, that's what he's trying to tell us here. All right. through the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. All right, so this is very key here, right? Um, the, our Lord, who descends from Judah, it does not become a priest on the basis of the requirement of that everyone who comes of the house of Aaron serves as a priest. That's what they do. That's that's their job. That's that's their tribe's um, allocation. That's what they've been given to be and to do. Jesus, on the other hand, um, being born of say Mary and Joseph, that's not the basis for him being our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But he says instead that he becomes our priest by the power of an indestructible life which is pretty cool. That's a great expression, right? Now that's a really dramatic kind of expansion of this one word in verse 17, forever. You are a priest forever, uh, which is into eternity, right? Yeah. Ice Ionan. Ionan. Into the, into the, into eternity. Yeah. But the indestructible life, right? So we believe that Christ has died and has risen and will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For example, and that's what the preacher teacher is confessing here. He can serve us in the way of Melchizedek because he never dies. And this also is going to come up in the third point here, as in the order of Melchizedek. Um, Oh no, it's the point coming up right in a minute. Um, But it also was made earlier that Jesus does not need to make sacrifice for his own sins. So that already places him in a different uh, category 
than all the Levitical priests, all the priests after the uh, order of Aaron. Because um, Aaron, of course, had, had to, Aaron and his sons and his son's sons offered sacrifices not only for the sins of the nation and the sins of the individuals, but for their own sins too, first, actually. All right. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, for it is testified, it is martyred, it's um, uh, attested of him. Okay, now we got a comparison. For on the one hand, verse 18, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. All right, so that's the fulfillment of this thing right here, this rhetorical question at the, in verse 11. Now, if the if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, right there, yeah. Okay, for under it the people, what did it say? Receive the law. Okay, that's the rhetorical question, and here's the answer. A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. Now, I know this bothers us, because as I was saying in our introduction, talking about the purpose of the law, the law is good and wise. It does show, um, it shows us the Father's will for us. It shows us our sin. That's what makes it good, right? But it is weak and useless in attaining righteousness, that is being made right before God. So without Christ's priestly service of us, none of us can enter into the holy place. None of us can be in God's presence. None of us are forgiven our sins. Not, not once, not for all, right? Um, this is also not to discourage um, you from living according to God's commandment, according to the Ten Commandments, as we say, um, as we've been saying all week in our uh, catechism, for, in our morning prayer, right? Uh, which sins are these? Which sins should we confess? Only uh, before the pastor, we should only confess those sins that we know and feel in our hearts, which are these. And then Luther rightly instructs us, consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, mother, or how's it go? Yeah, father, mother, son, wife. Ah, see, I lost my place. Worker, land, animal. No, that's the other part. <laughs> but consider your life, consider your place in life. Who are you? What has God made you? And uh, how have you gone against God's will or way within those vocations where he's placed you, where he's put you? So the law still has its purpose there in guiding the Christian life, but the problem is it always shows us sin because we're always sinful in the flesh, as we saw from Paul, right? So it doesn't accomplish this point. It does not accomplish the perfection that, the, that is demanded by the very same law. But notice what he says. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And I love this expression, a better hope. It's not a law. It's a hope, right? Um, yeah. Through which we can, we can draw near to God. Now, this is really important. This actually, this last expression, drawing near to God. Why? Because in the Levitical law, no matter how many sacrifices, no matter how many prayers you offered, um, no matter how many offerings you made, you never got to go into the most holy place or into the holy of holies. Most holy place, only men, and only then after they've been cleansed and whatnot, um, but women and children, never into the most holy place. And then only the high priest would go into, that was serving that year, would go into the most, the holy of holies, the most holy place, right? 
Okay, so holy place, yeah, outer courts, etc. I think I got that right. There's three areas, right? And now, though, through this new order of Melchizedek, the order of Christ, now we have access to draw near to God in the most holy place as he sits upon the mercy seat, giving out his grace and mercy, right? The temple curtain is torn in two. Isn't that beautiful? Right, so we always, we always have to keep um, God's word not balanced, not proportional, but rightly divided is the way that C.F.W. Walther uh, described it, really reflecting on Luther. That we, um, that we keep the law in its place, in its purpose. That is, yes, it, it restrains wickedness in the world. Yes, it um, shows the Christian, the believer, the way that he ought to go. But that it always, always accuses us of our sin. It can never show us, a, it can never lead us into life. It can never um, repair what is broken. That's nah, not a great expression. Uh, we talked about this on Banned Books this week. Um, it can never forgive sins. It doesn't ever take away sins. Right? Um, for that, we need this better hope. This new priesthood. Um, which not only shows us our sin, corrects, it doesn't actually even need to show us our sin. The law has done that. It actually does what the law cannot. It covers our sin. It forgives us. It makes us complete or perfect. Right? Now through declaration and then in the resurrection when it's, when it's done completely and fully. All right? Uh, and ultimately that we can draw near to God. This is why I've never really, hmm, I rant about this periodically, but it, it, it's worth remembering. I'm not a fan of hymns that say like, I'm but a stranger here. Heaven is my home. Um, because yes, while we're strangers on this earth, in a sense, in the flesh, we already have access to God. Heaven is already here on earth. We even pray this in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The good and gracious will is done here on earth. God is with us. We, we gather with saints and angels and the whole host of heaven around the altar of God. Okay, this happens every time we gather in divine service. Yes, I know it's not quite the same, oh, I guess experientially, visually, you know, um, auditorially, all of that. And yet it's true. And we, we, we cannot lose this. We cannot lose this. Actually, this is one of the biggest problems I would suggest with COVID and our response to COVID is that what, we've, what we found out is that many, many, even Lutherans, um, even Roman Catholics, you know, um, who have the mass, are actually inwardly non-sacramental piet pietists or uh, Protestants. We'll just call them Protestants. That they think that as long as they have their Bible and they have Jesus and they've got their prayers, that that's all that God has for them. But God in Christ has instituted uh, the office of the keys, <laughs> John chapter 20, right? That you would have a pastor that you would go to personally, privately, maybe, or corporately in the divine service and confess your sins and hear the word of forgiveness into your ears, not over the internet, but in your ears physically. And that put his hand upon you right? And bless you. But it's even more than that. It's this gathering to the altar of God to receive his grace and mercy, which is a confession of the reception of his body and blood in the divine service. That's what he's talking about here. That is the life of the Christian, is a life around his altar being forgiven and being fed 
with that forgiveness in his body and blood. And of course, hearing his word and studying and all of that that we're doing now, right? That's all been instituted by Jesus for your blessing, for your benefit. And it's of one cloth, it's of one fabric. So during COVID, uh, many people thought, well, we can just, you know, we do without the sacrament for a while. I mean, maybe even I was there, you know, out of concern for health or something like that. Um, but I think in hindsight now, especially, well, we recognize that there is no life of the Christian apart from the life that Christ has instituted. That is, apart from this priestly office that he fulfills for us, where he draws us near to himself so that we can draw near, so by that we're drawing near to God. All right, so a little rant there, but you get the idea. All right, well, let's see, was there anything else I wanted to talk about here? Yeah, um, maybe just expand a little bit more on this perfection idea. Um, it's worth noting that this text if it's not familiar to you, it's because it's not anywhere in any of the lectionaries. But, again, I think it's very important that we study this text, if and only if, because um, it's this recurring problem that I mentioned at the beginning of um, our life in the church, that people think that they can reach spiritual perfection by observing God's law, but it's more than that, that they can um, become liturgically perfect, if you like, through the performance of the divine service, just following all the instructions in the book just right, having that perfect service where everybody is smiling and there's joy and all the gifts are given, but it's not too long and it's not too boring. Okay. <laughs> that perfect Sunday, right? Mm, it's not going to happen. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, or maybe even um, seeking perfection through devotional life, using our congregation of prayer or, or other devotional resources and doing it just right, maybe even praying five times a day like a Muslim, right? Um, even facing Jerusalem instead of Mecca, <laughs> something like that. Does that, is that personal piety? Does that make you perfect? It, it's certainly going to bless you, being in God's word richly like that. But does it save you? No. Um, some would, would say that uh, speaking in tongues and other kinds of like um, non- word-based Holy Spirit activity, which doesn't really exist, uh, that that's perfection, or obviously just living a morally perfect life. Uh, and here, especially verse 19, we see what? That by the law, no one, nothing has ever been made perfect. Even though the law prescribes it and requires it, it cannot accomplish it. And just go read Paul and Galatians and Romans. The perfection God desires is the purity of the human heart. That's the problem. That comes from a clear conscience and participating in God's holiness. And that can only happen through this other priesthood. Because God's, um, God's law lacks the power to deliver the perfection of the fallen world. Because again, like, we, like I said, we stand in opposition to it. All right, so this be, ends up becoming a pretty important theme in our Lutheran confessions. Uh, and it's because it's such a common challenge. So I'm going to read you just a couple summaries of this. Just got back from Bells and Choir. Hi, everyone. Yeah. Uh, what I'm going to do, we just finished out verse 19. You just jumped in a wee bit late. Um, but we will... Yeah, there's verse 19. But I, uh, I'm going to read a few quotes from the Lutheran Confessions. Uh, and I can't read you everything, but actually I'm just going to do a summary. So there's basically five 
things that the Lutheran Confession, so this is primarily Augsburg Confession, Apology, and the Formula of Concord, those three um, do in regards to this idea, the way that the law cannot make anything perfect. It actually, in regards to salvation, in regards to righteousness, it's both weak and useless. All right, so the first point, even though God's law requires perfection, even those who are justified, that is forgiven freely for Christ's sake, cannot achieve the perfection of the law by their obedience to it. All right, so that's a common problem. People say, well, now that I'm forgiven, God enables me to keep the law perfectly. No, not true. Uh, apology 4, apology, let's see, oh, small called uh, 12, etc. All right, the second point that the, the confessions make, the perfection that the law demands as the true and proper service of God is not outward righteousness, but a righteous heart, the possession of a clear conscience before God. And that clear conscience can only come not through right doing, but through right believing, that is through the forgiveness of sins in Christ. All right. So the fulfillment or the perfection of the law comes to us only through Jesus Christ. Third, Christ, well, here it is, gained perfection for people on earth by his perfect obedience to God in his human life, death, and resurrection on their behalf. So that's a Formula Concord, Solid Declaration 3. And the perfect obedience, his perfect obedience that covers all their sins. Right? So Christ uh, obeys the law perfectly on our behalf and gives it to us in the forgiveness of sins. Fourth, the righteousness of Christ's total perfect obedience is conveyed to people by the Holy Spirit through the gospel in the word and sacraments and is received by faith in him. So the obedience that the law demands is received by us in the hearing of God's word and the reception of his gifts in the sacraments. Those gifts, both word and sacrament, by which he creates faith to trust in him. That's how it's conveyed to us. That's how it's given to us. And then fifth, while God's people undergo sanctification, that is um, being led into holiness, if you like, grow in holiness as they live by faith here on earth now, they ultimately gain full perf- perfection in holiness together with Christ only at the resurrection on the last day. All right, so um, this is a, kind of a famous way to think about it the now and the not yet, right? What has already been wrought or made or you know, earned or purchased for you, you has not yet been completely worked or perfected in you. That happens on the last day. So it is true that. Um, God is working amendment of life um, by faith in him. He's bringing about, I would say, a greater knowledge of your sin and thus a greater uh, reliance upon his word of forgiveness. That's what it means to be sanctified, is to come to trust more and more <laughs> in him for forgiveness. Right? But that ultimately cannot ever be done apart from faith in Christ. And it never reaches its goal um, in this life but only in the life to come. All right. Oh, we still have some time. So let's see if we can uh, tidy this up a little bit. Verse 20. Now we're going to have another theme. So this is the third theme. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. Remember, it's by birth. right? You're just a son of Aaron. That's what makes you a priest. But this one, meaning Christ, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Again, Psalm 110 verse 4. 
So the Lord um, uniquely and immediately makes him priest. Not by virtue of birth or blood or family tree, but by his declaration. All right, this is key. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. It's a different one and it's a better one. I like that. Uh, is that a great way to trans- translate it? Yeah, and even better. I, that's even. That's probably better. Verse 23, many others on the one hand have become priests since they were prevented by death from remaining such. Verse 24, <clears throat> but he on the other hand, because he remains for eternity, has the priestly service without disruption. Or it continues forever. Verse 25, hence he also has the power to save completely those who come near to God through him because he always lives to intercede on their behalf or for them. That's just beautiful. So much different than the Levitical priesthood, right? which um, now has been revealed to us um, in regards to righteousness before God to be weak and useless. I love that expression. All right, verse 26. Now, such a high priest was also fitting for us, devout, without evil, under, under, what did I say? Undefiled, that's a good word, or unstained, that works too. Um, separated from sinners, and having become higher than the heavens, or exalted above the heavens. Verse 27, who does not every day need, like the high priest, to offer up sacrifices, first on account of his own sins, then those of the people, because he did this by offering up himself once for all. Verse 28, for the law, that's the law of Moses, appoints men who have weakness as high priests. But the word, and that should be capitalized by the way, it's the logos, you know, John chapter 1, which is the title for Jesus. The word of the oath made after the law appoints the Son who has been made perfect for eternity. Has been made to, to teleo. Um, that is a perfect passive participle, of course. Has been made. All right. So, some things to talk about here. <laughs> so, we, we already had that um, he is both king and priest. Then we had um, that his. Uh, he comes not by the law of Moses, but by this new um, order, the order of Melchizedek. And now um, we learn that he is the guarantor of a better covenant, um, an eternal one, that he serves us eternally, unlike the continuous cycle of, of uh, new appointees under Aaron, because they kept dying as they do. So there, um, there's all sorts of things we could probably talk about. Um, this idea of an oath. Um, again, this is the problem with the Levitical priesthood. And just by virtue of who you are, you get to be a priest. But it actually doesn't matter because every one of them are dirty, rotten scoundrels. Sorry, including Aaron. <laughs> uh, Aaron's sons, obviously, they don't make it very long. And it just doesn't go well for the priests. And by the time we meet the priests of uh, the second temple, um, Herod's temple, yeah, they're pretty scummy. Too, and there's no glory cloud in that temple either. So uh, it's not even clear that God dwells in there at all. He only comes to dwell in the temple when Jesus shows up at 12 years old and then 
for pass outreach here. So, oh, and at the presentation purification, of course, as well, as we celebrated uh, on Tuesday. Yeah, yesterday. Um, but so then this is the third thing that he wants to bring out from that Psalm 110 verse 4, which is that the Lord has sworn, he, tell, he makes an oath, right? The oath comes directly from God. This makes, um, makes Jesus of a different um, sort of, what do you want to say, order, right? Um, it, because it comes secondly, then it overshadows, over, overtakes what came before it. So that's the first point. Um, that's what this um, guarantor of a better covenant or a new covenant. Uh, it doesn't mean that the law goes away, but the purpose of the law is eclipsed by the purpose of the gospel, if you want to put it that way. Um, now this is really, you know, really a reversal of the normal procedure to become a priest. In the ancient world as now, the installation of a high office, uh, which we've gone through, yeah, it was on January 20th, right? We had the installation, very bizarre one, that will forever go down in the history books as the weirdest thing ever in the history of the United States of America, I think, as far as an installation. Well, God willing, it's the weirdest thing we've seen. Occupied by 25,000 soldiers and 100 people show up for, a, for an installation. Very strange. Very strange. Um. But it was common for a person to become a priest or king by the swearing of an oath, which he committed himself to adhere to the legal terms of the office. But here, it's different. It's someone outside the person who serves who makes the oath on behalf of him. Right? Um, this is just as uh, Melchizedek swore to bless Abraham. Right? Uh, so that's what makes this quite a bit differently, different. Um, and that's why it's a better covenant, because it comes directly from God. It's not mediated through men um, who are sinful themselves, which we talk about it there. The key phrase then is for eternity or forever, right? Is that it, he doesn't, Jesus doesn't serve as a priest um, in this age and in this world, but in the eternal age and in the eternal heavenly world, right? So we live um, in this world, but not of this world. We live in the eighth day. We live in eternity. We're already in the new millennium. Okay, let's see what Eileen's saying. Thanks for the explanations. It's been confusing to me. Yeah, I know. This is the fun kind of sermon. Wouldn't you imagine if this is, he's just rolling this off his tongue and you're all, you get to the end and you'd be like, what did I just hear? This was nuts. Could you preach that again? Can you explain what you were talking about? Yeah. Well, we're breaking it down. Then again, that's only because of our, I, I would suggest, um, a little bit of illiteracy that we're not great at listening. Um, that's not really literacy. What do you call that? Auditory learning, I guess. Um, but also that we just don't know the Bible that well. So we had to study the Genesis 18 text with uh, Melchizedek. We had to study Psalm 110 a little bit more detailed. That's okay, though. That's what we're doing now, right? And there's, of course, forgiveness. <laughs> uh, let's see. What else do we want to talk about here? A guarantor of a better covenant. Um, what is a guarantor? What does that mean? Jesus is the one who delivers the blessings that are promised. That's what that means. Right? And the covenant, of course, is a contract. Um, this is not a two-way contract. This is not an exchange of goods. This is actually God who is promising to serve us through his son. There's a guarantee. All right? It's not, it's not guaranteed based off the service of the people doing the things all right according to his word, 
but it's rather the guarantee is Jesus and the way that Jesus delivers this gift to us. Um, now, this even better covenant, the statement here, um, he just kind of dumps it out here, but it's going to take three more chapters to really expand upon what this better covenant is, how much better it is. So we'll have to watch, because uh, he's going to compare it to Mount Sinai. We're going to talk about the bilateral covenant of God's law. So he's really introducing all sorts of things here um, and how, how it is actually better. So we'll get there. Uh, but notice, too, what's finally come back here. Verse 22, Jesus, his name. We had Lord a few a little bit ago. When was the last time we heard the name Jesus? It's, it's been a bit. It's been quite a while. We finally names him again. All right. Uh, let's see. Former priests were many in number, but because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, right? So their, their priestly service just goes for a time and it just keeps going. It, then it disappears. But again, forever means that Jesus serves as priest permanently because he continues forever, so his priestly office serves um, into eternity. His service to you can't be interrupted by all the things that, like, my service to you could be interrupted by, right? Like a birth. <laughs> Not yet. Don't worry. Uh, but being unavailable or disabled or aged or sick or, um, or even death or being disrupted by someone else step, stepping into my place or interrupting it. No, not with Jesus. He remains um, and he serves undivided and indivisible. Uh, And that's, of course, because he is eternal. Um, He belongs to God's uh, eternity. And by the way, eternity, another way of saying eternity is today, at least according to the Bible, right? So um, I'm trying to think of an example of this. Oh, you are my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. No, no, no. Uh, today I have begotten you. Where, where does that come from? Uh, can't think of it. Right? But every time we gather, it is today. And today is eternity. So uh, I like the way uh, my friend Pastor Riley said it, or had someone say it to him once. Um, you know, that he ended every conversation, uh, see you for lunch. Because whether we, he would see him for lunch or whether he would die, or it would be many moons. Eventually, it would always it just be the eternal lunchtime. <laughs> this is Mexican, so I guess you take a nap after that, too. Um, today has been a big theme here in the book, though. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, chapter 3, verse 7, uh, 13 and 15, and then chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 5, verse 5. So we've, we've had that idea of today, today, today. Uh, it's just been a little bit since we had that, so it's worth remembering today being an important day, the eternal day. All right, and then verse 25 is really the climax of Psalm 110, verse 4. He's able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. Right? He has the power of the indestructible life. He has the power then to save everyone, all mortal people from death. He's not, he's not limited by any kind of scope or weakness, right? like we see here uh, in verse 26. He's holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted from the heavens. There's nothing that can keep him from doing this job, this forgiveness job, this rescuing job, if you like. That's, that's his whole point. And this is, of course, what's happening in the divine service. This is why we don't ever want to forget the context here. This is being preached in the context of a divine service. So, so the preacher, by doing his exposition of Psalm 110, verse 4, is also encouraging the congregation to draw near, 
right? To draw farther up and further in, as C.S. Lewis says in uh, The Last Battle, right? Because there's Jesus. He's eternally there for you. He's always there making intercession for you, right? And, and the congregation then <laughs> can approach not only the throne, of, or the, uh, uh, to draw near to God, but uh, like we saw back in chapter four, to approach the throne of grace. And as we'll see in like chapter 10, um, to, uh, what is it? To enter into the heavenly sanctuary. And then in chapter 12, um, to join with the angels in the heavenly city. Right? All of that, we're drawing near, farther up and further in. Uh, and this all happens by Jesus, with Jesus, who intercedes on our behalf. Isn't that beautiful? Because he lives. And then, um, he has no need, as we talked about. I mentioned this before. Eh, this is just a comparison again to the other, the other priests, right? Who There's some dispute as to whether, whether or not there were sacrifices appointed for the priests themselves. Well, that's true. Um, and they were always offering, this is the same thing with the Lord's Supper with us. When the pastor receives the Lord's Supper, he's being forgiven, even though he himself spoke the words. It's not like it has to be spoken by someone else for it to be effective for the person speaking it. All right. Um, although it's nice to have two pastors, so they can actually give it to one another. And then, um, yeah, he offers up himself. So he then is not only the priest, but now we have this theme being introduced. He is also the sacrifice. All right. So that's, uh, that's pretty amazing too, I think. Yeah, I think that's worth noting. Although my notes don't have much on that. And then finally, the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, right? The law is weak and the people, the men he appoints are weak. But the, and the law is weak because of the men, because of us. But the word of the oath, that is, of the Lord, you are, forever, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which came later than the law. Ah, it was given before, but it comes later. Paul does the same thing in Galatians 4, right? That the law was given um, 430 years after the promise made to Abraham. Appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. All right. So he's quite unlike any of the high priests before. So um, this reading does find a place in the church calendar. Um, it's the 25th Sunday after Pentecost, I think, in series B, <laughs> if you do the three-year series, which I'm not a big fan of. Um, but it's there, and uh, it's connected to the story of blind Bartimaeus. So um, there it's meant to encourage the congregation to... Seek mercy from Jesus, who is our mediator and high priest of God's grace, and receive sight in him and him alone. Um, I think the most profound influence, though, is the way that this describes um, Jesus serving us every time we gather in the divine service. Right? Remember, it's God. Divine service just means God's service to us. Or in in the German, it was Gottesdienst. Gottesdienst. God serves us. Right? Of course, most evidently as he comes as our uh, high priest in the Lord's Supper, where he serves us with himself. Or as Luther says, um, he is the butler, he's the host, or he's the host, he's the butler, and he's the meal. <laughs> um, for you. Those, those words are so key, right? He offers up himself for all, right? And for you, for those of the people, right? For his own sins, but no, not for him, no. For you, 
So the words for you require all hearts to believe because that's, that's actually where the gospel point is, is that he gives himself to you, body and blood shed for you. So one more uh, reference from the book of Concord on this. Uh, the formula of Concord teaches that Christ is present in the church and with the congregation on earth as mediator and high priest, just like what we saw here. Um, that's in Formula of Concord Solid Declaration, Article 8. I'll actually just read some of it for you. We believe, remember this is a confession of faith, uh, one of ours in the Lutheran confessions, we believe that the cited passage, which include Hebrews 1 verse 3 and Hebrews 2 verse 7 through 8, right, earlier, illustrate the majesty of the man Christ, which Christ received according to his humanity at the right hand of the majesty and power of God, so that, here's the key, also according to and with the same assumed human nature of his, Christ can be and is present wherever he wills. And in particular, that he is present with his church and community on earth as mediator, head, king, and high priest. I mean, this is just reflecting on the book of Hebrews, isn't he? He is present not only according to his deity, as his godliness, but also according to and with his assumed human nature, according to which he is our brother, and we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, Ephesians 5. To make certainty and assurance doubly sure on this point, he instituted his holy supper, that he might be present with us, dwell in us, and work, and be mighty in us according to that nature, too, according to which he has flesh and blood. So that we, I love that statement, to make certainty and assurance doubly sure on the point, he instituted the Holy Supper to be present with us, dwell in us, and work and be mighty in us according to both his human and divine natures. Isn't that something? Right. So that's um, the formula of Concord. Article 8. All right. Um, so the, he is there in the divine service um, but maybe a way to think about this, obviously we have the statue up um, on the rare dose um, where he's facing you and you can see his wounds. Um, but he's also in the person of the priest. You know, I'm serving in his stead, but he's really the one serving. I'm just the placeholder in the stead. Yeah, um, where he's also facing towards God, bringing intercession, your needs, right? Making intercession for them. You see that in verse uh, 25. So not only is he giving himself to you, but he's also offering um, your prayers and intercessions up before his father. And then he takes the word that the father speaks and he turns and speaks it to us. So watch the way that the pastor um, faces and turns to the people. Right? When he's offering, uh, on, you know, offering up to Christ who offers them up to the father on our behalf, he's going to face the altar. Right? But when he's giving you a gift, when he's giving you God's word, when he's delivering the word of forgiveness, when he's giving you know, declaring, um, yeah, the good gifts, he's, the pastor's going to face you. Almost always. Maybe a few exceptions. All right. Um, and then, this perpetual intercession, right? He always lives to make intercession of a new covenant. Um, this is what we do in our collect of the day. At the end of every collect of the day, um, so on Sunday, and then when we, we, we pray them through the week in our congregation of prayer, they always end the same. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Right? It, it, in it, we normally are praying to the Father, although sometimes to the Son or to the Spirit. 
but it always ends through Jesus Christ our Lord, because Jesus himself prays for us, and since he is with us, when we pray, he is praying with us to the Father. Right? So that's why we say through Jesus Christ, because he is interceding for us and with us at all times. His intercession for us is then shaping um, our prayers and making them pleasing to the Father, which is always encouraging for people when they say, I don't know what to pray for. And I'm like, pray for something <laughs> and say it in Jesus' name. That's it. And he will make it perfect. Hmm. All our prayers need is forgiveness too. Um, so the Augsburg Apology of the Augsburg Confession emphasizes, um, just as we've been paying attention to here, we, we have access, that's the word it uses, to God and his grace. But that access is only, here again, through him, through Jesus, through this high priest. Those who draw near to God through him, this is the key. Right? You cannot come to God through any other uh, means, right? not by climbing a mountain and not by uh, going on a hike or not by doing good works or whatever it is. You only come into God's presence through the mediating, atoning sacrifice of your eternal high priest, Jesus Christ. All right? So you can see that. Uh, how does it say it? Oh, we therefore come near to the Father through him as our high priest and mediator. He does not cease to be our mediator once we have been justified. He is our mediator continually. Apology four. Whenever we pray, we rely on the mercy of God and our access to him through Jesus. For through his priestly mediation, we are led to the Father. Apology four. Right. So, um, studying the Augsburg Confession can be really helpful. Or all the confessions, I should say, the Lutheran confessions, because you find out they do just a delightful job in. helping you understand even a text like this. So if you've got a uh, book of Concord and you can look up the Apology, Article 4, especially paragraphs 215, 222, and following 246, 256, 269, 358, 376. It's a long article. Um, I think it goes on for like 30 or 40 pages. It's on the um, sacrifice of Christ. But all through and through, um, it offers helpful framework to understand what we're reading here. So. It can work both ways. Um, I'd like to say that actually it's the book of Hebrews that's informing the apology to the confession, telling us how to confess who Christ is for us. I saw a chat fly by there. I think you should emphasize how you face the altar for us more often. Symbolism. Yeah, I think so. Um, It's hard to know when to move from, I guess, performative acts to teaching acts. Um, I've tried this any number of ways throughout my ministry. I've never found a great way to do it apart from just pointing it out anytime I can in Bible class, catechesis, um, etc. Um, but you know, like we did just now, pay attention next time and, and ask yourself, what, why is pastor, why does he turn to face the altar at that point? Why does he face us at that point? What's the distinction between the two? Uh, one thing that I've changed here recently, my first, well, I don't know, most of my ministry until um, I was serving in Chicago with a freestanding altar, and for a time in Dyer, that was in Indiana, it was that way too. Um, is that I turn with the body and the blood to um, proclaim the words of institution to you, the people. Um, the, the Roman rite is actually to take um, the body and hold it up, and the cup, and to hold it up facing the altar, um, which many Lutherans retained. Um, they didn't really see too much problem with that. Um, facing the altar. But rather, I think we ought to understand 
I'm not gonna I'm not gonna judge people who don't do it this way, but um, that the words of institution, take eat, this is my body, given for you, right? Take and drink, this is my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. Those are proclamatory words of gospel. Right? Now I say for you to each individual when we're doing the distribution. But when the words of institutions are proclaimed is proclaimed, it made more sense to me now to turn and face the people, right? And to do it that way. And there's precedent for that as well among Lutherans. So in any case, it's not always cut and dry, I guess is the point. All right. Um, so of course, um, the son has been made perfect forever because he is the obedient son from eternity. I think that's good. I mean, there's probably like a hundred more things we could talk about. Um, but that's a good place to leave off. We'll look at chapter 8 next time. I don't know how far we'll get in chapter 8. Um, this is Jesus as our liturgist, actually, the one conducting the service. So that'll be cool. So we'll do that next time. So uh, let me get back to my screen here. With that, uh, I thank you for joining us. Thanks for your questions and comments. You can, obviously, if you're not watching it live, you're watching it later, you can still post comments and questions below, whether whatever platform you're watching it on. Um, and I get notification, so be able to respond to those, even if it's years from now, and you, you thought it'd be fun to go back and study the book of Hebrews with me talking to a computer screen during COVID-19 lockdown. But, so it is. We're not locked down now, but uh, this makes the most sense. And again, we'll do, we'll do this one more time next week, uh, God willing, and then uh, we'll take a break for Lent. And uh, instead, same time, actually, you'll be able to join us for our service uh, divine service on Ash Wednesday and then evening prayer through the through the season of Lent. So Lord be with you all and we'll see you in the morning.